0: Welcome everyone to our final interview of the first series of Leading in a Climate-Changed World from Olivia Mythodrama. We're going to take a break over the Christmas period, uh, but don't worry, we're going to be back in January with a host of interviewees already lined up for our second series. In this episode, episode 16, Robin speaks to Sandy Ibrahim, writer and author of The Sovereign Woman. They discuss the qualities needed of everyone today as we define our leadership in order to enter an era that will need us to be strong and make significant sacrifices. Sandy talks about the myth of the goddess Inanna, who enters the underworld to find her sister, and who must undertake a journey of self-realisation before being deemed guilty of hubris. She talks about how we can use this myth to realise how humanity must move forward. They talk about how we must connect to nature to understand the situation and how being seen to be doing good isn't enough and how we need to realize more feminine leadership if we want to challenge the current status quo so for the final time in 2019 i'll say over to robin and sandy and we'll see you in the new year
1: so welcome everybody to our podcast series leading in a climate changed world today I'm delighted to be speaking to Sandy Ibrahim. Sandy is part poet, part rabble-rousing mystic. She's a Canadian of Egyptian and German descent, and she sometimes says she doesn't know if her grandmothers are cheering her on or rolling over in their graves. After leaving her child at home at 17, she's been pursuing sovereignty while maintaining a state of reverent bewilderment. She lives in Victoria, BC with her husband. She's about to launch her youngest son into the world. And Sandy's life and work explores themes of leadership, including aspects like sovereignty, sacrifice, maturity, purpose, empathy. She often turns to myth to break away from solutions thinking. And like the goddess Inanna, who I think we will hear more about during the interview, we may collectively be taking a descent into the underworld, a place of chaos, destruction, and resurrection, or at the very least, We are in a liminal space betwixt and between. Either way, she would say we've left the ordinary world and are living with dark uncertainty. And just as seeds sprout in the dark, this could be an alchemical time. Leadership for Sandy includes cultivating empathy for the shame, grief, confusion, anxiety, and despair that comes with seeing our complicity in destroying our world. She believes that a willingness to tell the truth about our lives serves as a strong catalyst for creation and could spur a transformation that weaves us back into belonging to Earth. So Sandy, welcome, it's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you, it's great to be here.
1: And maybe we could pick up on this part at the end where we talk you, you, at the end of the introduction where I said, you think that a willingness to tell the truth about our lives can also be part of what, what catalyzes shifts that are needed and maybe you could just tell us a bit about about your life and kind of what brought you into this field of concern
2: mm. yeah I think it uh, I think when I was a little girl I understood that um, we were a little off track that there was a, there was a couple of things going on that um, I was having two separate experiences of the world, one in nature and one at home. And to me, real life was happening outside in, um in my backyard. And I was really connected to, uh, you know, all of the elements. And I would have these magical experiences or things that like things that really felt magical. And then I'd go inside and I kind of want to talk about them, but I knew I didn't have any language around it.
1: Like, and i'd come what sort of magical experiences would you be wanting to talk about?
2: I think the feeling of connection and belonging mm-hmm. you know it wasn't anything other otherworldly it was very earthly worldly you know um, it was very tangible and real, and it was being dismissed um as relevant in um you know in my house and in at school everywhere and Um, So I started grasping for language um, around the kind of experiences that I was having. I turned to religion. I had a friend who was Mormon, and I thought maybe she had it because I knew that what I was experiencing wasn't being talked about, you know, and uh, like, I guess some of, you know, to, if I can try to find some language about it, I felt like I was um, in relationship with my environment and that my environment was aware of me. So the wind and I had a connection and um, I could kind of sense how uh, the wind would uh, connect me to the trees, to, um, you know, even to the roots. I could almost hear the the ground stretch with the roots breaking through. There was just a real intimacy that I felt. Um, And it was real. I just, I knew, I knew it. Uh, But like I said, it was, it was so dismissed. So I could feel the schism that was going on as a young girl. Um, And then just gradually I abandoned my relationship with nature, you know, so that way I could find my place in society. But it was always there like this ache Um, a kind of silent ache and I ended up working as a computer programmer when I was in my early 20s and suffered uh, a panic attack one day that sent me into um, a doctor's office and I was eventually put on medication and for depression and the doctor told me that I was too sensitive to read the news because um, it was partly spurred on by something I had seen about the polar bears, so this would have been about twenty-five years ago. So I, um, you know, jokingly say that the doctor's uh, cure for that was a lifetime of denial and some Prozac. Um, and then life got busy. I um, I ended up getting married and I had two children, and they brought me immense amount of joy and. I you know threw myself into motherhood and loved pretty much every moment of it and it you know it brought me back into that kind of connection that I felt as a young girl um, and I was consumed with with motherhood and kind of shut out in a way what was going on in the world um, and began to see myself as a kind of a passive observer, you know, maybe one of the good guys in a broken world, but um, not really recognizing that I had any part of it. Um, So uh, in about about three years ago, I started waking up to just how dire the situation was in terms of the climate crisis that we are in. And through the grief and, uh, and the shame, I just, like, I stayed with the problem and was able to see how I was directly connected to it through, through my own life. Um, you know, not that I am trying to take on all of the problems of the world um, as one individual, but I recognize that I, as an individual, was the world. I was a small part of the world and I was in fact contributing to the problem or the disconnection, well, however we want to phrase this. So that's kind of how it started for
1: me. Right. Thank you very much. And I want to pick up on something you said earlier when you said, because I think this is really at the root of the challenge. You said I had to leave some of my connection with the environment in order to take my place in society. hmm and I wonder if you could speak a bit about how also now you work with myths and stories and poetry and, and other ways of kind of engaging with this topic. But how can we be in society and connected? Why, or do you feel like there still needs to be a choice somehow? Or how do we stay connected while we function in the world and have jobs and travel and do all the things that we need to do?
2: Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a really good question, and it's on top, it's, it is, for me, the question of the, of the times. How can we stay connected to nature when society is destroying it, um, is another way of putting, putting that. I think we have to create a bridge back. And maybe there is a, you know, I, I wrote to you, I, I think, a little bit about the idea that I feel like we can't really be good people right now and that we have such a strong desire to be good. And, you know, perhaps what our definition of good is revolves around how successful we are in society, how welcomed we are, um, how, um, you know, what our sense of belonging is. But when our society is fundamentally sick, which it is right now, um, and our goodness, our, our idea of goodness, then kind of collapses in on itself. So I don't think that we can be collectively good um, or objectively good right now. And-
1: but say more about that because that's quite a provocative statement that we can't mm. do it now. So if somebody's saying, well, I'm doing my best and I'm composting and I'm sold my car and i don't fly anymore and i'm compassionate to my neighbors and i have an allotment where i grow my food you'd say we still can't be good or what does it mean when you say we can't be good
2: yeah well i'm still trying to figure out what i mean what i mean by this but um, first of all i think that our identities and our sense of safety as individuals revolves a lot around the idea that we may be good people and maybe what i'm suggesting is it's irrelevant um whether we're we're good or not is irrelevant and you know um i've been hearing that term virtue sigla- signaling a lot lately you but know where people are virtue signaling, virtue signaling. I, you know it's just kind of one of the terms that gets thrown out there so um that way i you know i can i can appear like i'm good i can appear like i'm caring and i'm part of the solution but destruction is woven into the very fabric of our day-to-day lives so if we were to you know put put our behavior on a scale no matter how well-intentioned we are every individual in the in the western world is causing immense amount of harm so that's the reality Um, so maybe we should just get over the idea of being good and accept that we're not, <laughs> and that we can continue moving forward anyway. Um, um, that doesn't answer your question about how to how how to hold both society and nature um, and our relationship uh, to both. Um, maybe I am saying that we can't. If we want to be good in society, if we want that, the way that um, uh, business as usual right now is and we want to have a strong connection to, to nature, well, well, we're not going to be able to. Because um, how can we be intimate with uh, what we're destroying?
1: Right, and I guess it's also a question about whether we see nature or the environment as something out there that we kind of build a bridge to, or you said earlier, I am the Earth. Like It's not like there's, the Earth is out there and it's something that I have a, have a relationship to. If I identify myself more with that, mhm that will bring forth different sorts of actions yeah would you say that
2: i would say that yeah yeah and then the the bravery is well then how do we reestablish our connection with ourselves i guess is what uh, you might be leading us to here as as earth and in order to do that um, we have to tell the truth about our lives, which is what I was saying before, and admit that we're that we are suffering as, as individuals, and that we're hurting, and that our lives are unmanageable.
1: Right. So, so there's something about radical honesty in that. Mm-hmm. Really looking at the truth of our lives, what we feel, what we inflict, what's happening. Really looking at, at that full on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know in every aspect of our lives like looking at our relationships, our marriages, um our consumption habits, uh, um how we're trying to squeeze ourselves into into boxes in order to um succeed, you know. Uh, uh e- even looking at leadership as something that's outside of us. Um yeah. I mean, we need a fundamental transformation of the way that we view ourselves in this world. And that's going to take an immense amount of courage and truth telling and a dissent, you know, like, like Anana took, um, where we strip away all of the concepts that we have about ourselves and look at them and, and, and face that and, and, uh, you know, swim in uh, unknowingness for a while.
1: Right. So for, for people in our audience who maybe don't know the, the story of Inanna, could you give us a kind of five minute synopsis of, of what that tells us and why you also feel it's a relevant myth for our time?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I love this myth so much. Um, so it was a story that was told in Sumeria about 5,000 years ago. And Inanna was a goddess that was, um, you know, famous. In Mesopotamia. She, for a couple of reasons, uh, the first being that she brought civilization to mankind. Um, She tricked one of her fathers, um, she had many fathers, um, into giving up the tools of civilization and then she brought them to mankind. She had a love affair for for mankind, for men specifically, and uh, she was very beautiful and she was very sexual and um, and powerful, she was the goddess of both heaven and earth, and um, she had a sister, Arishkegel, who lived and ruled the underworld. And they were separated, of course. Um, you, uh, in you know, I, even to today, I think in myths, the, the underworld isn't a place that you can come back from. So Anana never got to see her sister, Arishkegel. And Arishkigal's husband died. And so Anana decided that she wanted to go down and help Arishkigal with the funeral arrangements. Although some people say that she went down there as a power grab for Arishkigal's territory. But regardless, she went. Um, And she asked the sky gods to help her if she couldn't return, because she couldn't return. That was one of the rules of the underworld. And the sky gods forbade it and said no one should ever crave the underworld they saw it as a place of depravity and kind of the composting for the human soul and you know there was nothing measurably good about the underworld it was an unseen territory and they saw no value of it the sky gods of course were mathematicians and architects and logical and um and favored that over the the messiness and the death of the underworld. So Anana went down anyway, and um, she dressed up in all of her royal uh, greatness, and uh, and with her very best friend Nunshabar she 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 knocked on the door of the underworld, and she was accepted in and had to go through seven gates as uh, before she could see. Uh, her sister Arishka and at each one she had to strip something off of her. Um, just as an aside, Nunshabar stayed in on Earth and be um, and um, how do you say it? She she was beating the drum for Anana, and would do so for three days. and uh, And after three days, if Anana hadn't returned, Nunshabar was going to go and find help. So. Anana goes down into the underworld and she strips all of her royal regalia. She takes off her crown, she takes off um, her chest plate. Um, one by one, she strip she strips down and becomes quite, you know, humiliated and she's outraged in the process. And when she finally sees Arishkigal, Arishkigal um, uh, with one look kills her. Um, and she is sentenced to death because of her hubris. So, three days pass, and Nunshabar ends up getting help. And these little beings come down, and um, Anan is on a meat hook. And these beings come down, but they first tend to Erishkegel, who's in an amazing amount of pain. She's suffering from the grief of losing her husband and also of killing her sister, and she's just in immense amount of pain. And so these beings, they come to Erishkegel first, and Arishkigal, um is screaming, and she's like, oh, my kidneys, oh, my kidneys. And the um, these little beings say, oh, your kidneys, oh, your kidneys, and every pain that Erishkegel um reveals they reflect and in this reflection, in this empathetic reflection, um Arishkigal softens and all of her pain is removed and she says, Well what can I do for you? Uh and they point to Anana and they say we want her. And she says, Oh, okay, she's your queen. I understand. So um, they breathe life back into anana, and anana takes the dis- or, uh, makes the ascent back up to the um, to earth, but an exchange has to take place because no one can leave the underworld that is the rule, so a deal's made where someone can replace anana so she goes off and um, uh, long story short, she finds her husband having a great party, prostitutes on his knees. And she says, "You are going to go into the underworld." and uh, And then uh, his name is Demuzi, and Demuzi's sister stands in front of him and says, "No, no, no, don't take him. He's a good man. He's a good man." And so they decide that uh, they'll split the time. So six months of the year, Demuzi goes down, six months of the time, his sister goes down. And that's uh that's the end of the story. Jungians have been studying this myth for, you know, ever since it was revealed, probably in the 1920s, or well, 1950s, I guess, is when the Jungians would have taken it. But uh, um, they see that they see it as a map into our unconscious. And then feminists have taken the story and they see it as a warning of the sign of patriarchy.
1: Right. So I want to ask you what you're doing with the story around the climate emergency. Like, how do you feel it's, it relates, it's a very strong story. Thank you so much for telling it. And I can feel its relevance also, but I'd love to hear your take on it. and why. Yeah, you, yeah
2: how I'm flushing it out.
1: Yeah. Why is it a myth about time that would support us in looking and understanding what's happening around the climate emergency?
2: Well, I think it is a warning um, of the times to come. I think that Inanna, um, uh, it, it's, uh, we're living in the consequence of many of the decisions that were made back in Mesopotamia and Samaria, right? They set the foundations of, of what we're doing today in many ways, taxes, trade, um, the beginnings of civilization. They, um, they learned to, um, you know, grow their crops by irrigation, um, and then their climate change because they, they didn't realize that they were irrigating their crops with salinated water. And so it folded. And, uh, um, so there's a lot of similarities. They were, uh, a war, uh, there was war everywhere in Samaria and very violent culture. And, uh, and the patriarchy was rising at that time. Anana, um, Anana's descent is also the descent of the feminine principle because, um, during that time, Anana was very famous and, um And then, as she moved, as different civilizations took over that land, she became different goddesses, Ishtar and then Isis and um, uh, Athena. and it she just kind of disappeared from from relevancy. so that's that's one thing. And I think that that's relevant to climate change because I, because the lack of feminine principles and governance and then leadership is partly responsible for destroying our climate.
1: Um, if you were just to pause you there for a moment, if you were to unpack that, <laughs> what does that mean when you say lack of feminine principles in governance? What kind of practices or principles would you see if there was more of the feminine present?
2: <sighs> um, I think that women are very tied to the earth. We're we're earthbound um, by nature's design. Um, We we live in cycles. We feel those in our bodies. We we breathe them. Um, It's very hard, I think, for women to perform in the same way every single day, 365 days a year. We understand that there's times that we need to rest. Our body dictates that. And rather than seeing that as a strength or as wisdom, it's been um, considered to be a weakness and a, and a lack of ability to perform, right? I'm talking, of course, about our menstrual cycle, for one. Um, motherhood also will you know, take us into a different realm. The ability to give life through our own bodies is you know, very much an aspect of, this, of Earth. So, um, you know, we feed our children from our own bodies, just like earth feeds all of its children from her body. So we have an innate physical understanding of, um, of the, the rules of nature because they're, they're in ourselves, you know, and I'm not suggesting that men don't, but it's out of, it's obviously out of whack there's no balance <laughs> that's that's here so feminine leadership in the true way that feminine that that women would lead you know which is which might be okay let's take a break for two weeks and miss the deadline because we don't have the answer
1: Does right yeah totally and but I, I and i noticed that you're also talking about women and my understanding of the feminine is that it's different from women so i as a male for example have some feminine Aspects to my nature, which can be amplified or not, and patriarchy for sure, and all the conditioning that I grow, it amplifies more than mm-hmm. masculine. But yeah. I wonder, so there, there's, I totally understand and, and support what you're saying around around women's innate connection to, to earth and to, to nature and to the environment in a way that I, as a man, do not experience, for example. But as a man, I could also exhibit feminine principles of leadership. Would you, think, would you agree with that?
2: I would. Yeah. And how, how would you see yourself doing that?
1: With some of the, what I would consider more kind of feminine aspects of myself. So fluidity, emergence, sensitivity, compassion, care, as opposed to a kind of more masculine paradigm of kind of order, power, logic, analysis, drive, the the different kind of qualities, yin yang, we might say qualities. Animus animus, Mm -hmm. and cultures will will language it differently, but I have both of these in me. Yes. And part of my understanding of what's needed now is that we need to amplify the feminine, both in men and in women.
2: Yes. Yes. Here, here. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, the feminine has been oppressed in both of us.
1: Right. Right. So if, We build a bit on on what you shared about the legend of Inanna and also your work around some of the qualities I mentioned in the the intro around you, like sovereignty and sacrifice. Mm. How do you work with these qualities? Because these are also, I want to bring it a little bit more now to leadership. So these are qualities that you feel are important in leadership at the moment. And do you draw them from that legend or you draw them from your experience of life? Well, what where, where's the focus
2: yeah. of this particular? Yeah, both. I mean, back to Anana, it's uh, you know, I've studied the myth for uh, for years now, um, and it's not necessarily self-evident ag- again, how her descent would relate to what's going on, but back to her descent and what it was that she was sacrificing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a self-concept of of who she was and how she was to gain power. So Anana had, uh, a, you know, a fairly, I guess, masculine sense of how she was going to gain power. Um, and it was, it was during that descent when she was stripped away from it all, that, uh, and then tried for hubris. And I, I, that, that is, that word more than anything is what stands out for me. And the death because of hubris. That hubris was the great crime that Anana committed and it was so great that she, you know, the goddess of heaven and earth would die for that. I think that's so relevant to what uh, we're doing right now. You know, in the climate conversations, I can see the different pulls for narrative about how we're going to talk about this. And even within it, it's hubris. Even with the climate champions of the world, there's still hubris in terms of, we think that we know what's going on here and we don't know. What's going on? So, um, you know, I believe the science of climate change. Don't get me wrong. I believe it. But I knew it when I was seven years old that something was wrong without seeing any science. Um, so focusing purely on the science of climate change is, is hubris. It, it once again puts our own knowledge before the knowledge of the earth and, what's, and, and life itself um, and creates that separation. There's something happening right now. And, um, and we are deeply complicit in the destruction of our world. There's no question about that, but something is emerging, you know, maybe it will include us and maybe it won't. Um, but we can't solve this problem and even using the language of solving the problem of climate change, I think, you know, points to the hubris of humanity. Um, I think the invitation and the invitation that Anana got was to relinquish the control, in a sense, and set down her ideas about who she was, her fanciful ideas about who she was, and, uh, and, and let the compost just eat, eat those identifications away until she was just left um, with the elements and then, you know, re- reborn. And able with humility, with a sense of place, and um, you know, resume her position of authority because we do have authority um, in this world. And that's you know, through yeah. our sovereignty.
1: Right, exactly. That? That's what I was gonna to come to. Maybe you could speak a bit about your understanding of sovereignty and where <sighs> you see it. If we also now kind of zoom out a little bit into into what you see in the world first thing what is your understanding of sovereignty and, and and do you see it anywhere do you see it in leaders anywhere do you see it in in, in manifesting anywhere what is your experience of sovereignty also
2: mhm yeah well i love i just love the word sovereignty first of all it remains a, an immense riddle to me and it pulls me in i've spent uh, the last 4 years in really um in deep inquiry about the word thinking that i knew what it was Um, So when when I first started thinking about the word sovereignty, I thought that it meant that I could do what I wanted, (laughs) Um, you know, that I had full agency about my life. And I don't I don't feel that now you asked, do I see any leaders um, that have sovereignty? I look to nature now and I see sovereignty everywhere in nature, but I don't really see it in humanity yet. Um, and now the definition that I have of sovereignty is, you know, it's not a definition, but kind of a, a feeling of, of understanding of the word is more that it is to be what who and what we are. It's almost an elemental you know requirement for for life. that what, that which is needs to be what it is. And if it isn't able to be what it is, it lacks sovereignty. So, you know, a rose is is a rose and there's conditions for sovereignty. You know, there's hell, you know, um, the rose will always be the rose. It may be a dying rose. It may be a thriving rose and there's conditions to support its growth like there are um, in us. But we're not, I don't believe that humans are sovereign. I don't think we know who and what we are in terms of um, what life has been asking of us. So I think that there's this, I didn't realize this until well into my inquiry after I read Sharon Blackie's book, If Women Rose Rooted. Have you read that? No, I haven't. It's a fantastic book.
1: So maybe you could talk to us a bit about your understanding of what sovereignty is and how you see it appearing or not appearing in the world.
2: So I've been thinking about sovereignty for many years and Um, when I first started working with the word, I thought that it was pointing to um, authority or agency um, of an individual. And I had images in my head of, you know, um, like women with a sword. I even have that on my website, you know, that it was a strength that, that, um, that I would be able to exhibit in the world. And as I sat with the inquiry, it, It seemed to me that it was more of a submission into who I already am than some kind of fabrication of who I could be. And um, I started looking into nature and asked myself things like, well, is the rose sovereign? Is my dog sovereign? Is uh, that tree sovereign? And um, began to see it as as a property of life sovereignty is a property of life it's necessary to life Um, that the thing that is has to be what it is and to me that's what sovereignty ultimately means is the agency to be who you are and I think that that's lacking in uh, in human society
1: Right. All would, over you say, would you say people, some of the great leaders that we might sometimes refer to, like Nelson Mandela, for example, would you say that somebody mm-hmm. like him has a sense of sovereignty?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I did start thinking, I was wondering which people out there I thought had sovereignty. And, uh, and oftentimes they were the, the, the people who had, um, I didn't see sovereignty in myself. And this was disturbing to me because I, um, I'm a woman who has a lot of privilege. I live in, um, in a, you know, in, I'm well fed, I'm well looked after. I can have avocado on my toast and coffee every morning. So I thought, well, surely I must be sovereignty. So I, I must be sovereign that I thought that sovereignty might be attached to the ability to make a lot of choice in your life, that the more choices you had, um, the The less restricted you had, the more freedom that you had, the more sovereign you were. And then I um, really considered people who I thought were sovereign. Nelson Mandela was one who came up right away for me. I saw him as sovereign. And
1: uh, who else?
2: Well, Oprah Winfrey, I saw as sovereign. You know, immediately just out of the gates. And, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg now, I mean, there's an example of sovereignty, you know, and then there's countless number of people that, that are sovereign that will never see uh, the headlines and they're not necessarily the most privileged among us. In fact, I started seeing an inverse relationship between sovereignty and privilege, that, that uh, the more privileged that we have, potentially the less sovereign we're going to be. Because we don't want to risk losing what we think we have in order to come out as who we are, which may not be accepted. And, you know, and I felt that myself, that as I started speaking more about the climate crisis, I started losing some friends. Uh I started losing some of of, uh, the comfort that I had in my life. But I want to get back to Sharon Blackie's book for a second. Um, uh, She wrote a book called If Women Rose Rooted, and she talked about the goddess of sovereignty. who is a goddess that lives in Ireland, who lived in Ireland. Um, And it turns out that sovereignty was the goddess of the land. So she would go into covenant with the king or whoever was ruling and would make an agreement that if the rulers looked after her, and the people of the land then she would continue to provide support to the 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 kingdom if that covenant was broken all hell would break loose and and she would come back in floods and and kind of reassert her own dominance which i think we're seeing right now
1: oh that's beautiful and we we as you know we work with a a palette of 10 archetypes in the mythodrama business and one of them is the sovereign and i think for us it's a little bit similar i think to what you're saying it's about receiving and radiating a sense of purpose into the world. Mm-hmm. Willing mm-hmm. to stage and, and, and or at least willing to stand for our beliefs and, and to radiate that into the world.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and, and the more that I think about sovereignty, the more I see it as a sacred, uh, sacred covenant between me, an expression of life and life uh, itself. That has that has brought this expression forward and Danana um, who was hung for her hubris I think forgot about that and she thought that she alone was powerful but but we're nothing without life's intelligence breathing and animating us
1: right and then there's also this beautiful description you gave us earlier about anana going through seven, levels of stripping away, stripping away, stripping away, mm-hmm. stripping away. And I guess that's something that we also need to ask in leadership now, that they strip away all the, all the artifacts, all the, all the practices, all the ways of not being authentic. Yeah. Onto something very core. And in your terminology, I think maybe that's about maturity. Like one of the words that you also explore is maturity. Mm-hmm. What does maturity in leadership look like for you?
2: I think it points to upholding the highest truth of of, of the situation. You know, there's so many systems right now that are broken and we can support those broken systems, you know, because the stakeholders, whoever they are, um, want us to, you know, keep things the way they are. So leadership now is to move, I think, beyond, you know, it's to really maybe re- reframe the question, who are the stakeholders? I was thinking about that this morning, that, you know, the stakeholders for me are my great-great-grandchildren. They're the unseen. They're, they're, who, they're who, who are going to come after this. Those are the real stakeholders here. My children are the real stakeholders. So, you know, upholding that duty to, to, to the future of, of the planet that's the that's that's who we're responsible to and that means healthy society and healthy community and healthy systems in place and right now they're not so you know anyone who's in a leadership position right now if they were to really bring their maturity into it they'd start challenging um what the practices that that are going on at all levels and um yeah, it's risky.
1: <laughs> right, it's definitely risky. And you also talk about the notion of sacrifice. So I'm wondering if there's more you want to say about sacrifice mm-hmm. as well as the core themes of leadership at the moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think about, um, I'm sure you know, Charles Eisenstein's work. Yes. And uh, one of the things that he, ha- you know, frequently talks about that I just think is so powerful is that we can't, Served more than one master. So, in the case of leadership, who are we serving? And I think it's really important to get clear on, on who that is. You know, it kind of reflects back to what I was saying before. For me, the stakeholders are those that are yet to come. It, we need to sacrifice some of our masters or our allegiance to them, especially if there's contradictory motivations there. Um, because if there are, then we're going to be ineffective as, as leaders, you know, Anana had to sacrifice her, her ego. She had to sacrifice her sense of what a leadership, what a leader looked like, what her sense of being a queen was, right? The first thing she, she put down was her crown, um, which was very much about her identity, you know? So maybe, you know, one of the things that leaders have to sacrifice is the idea that they know what to do. Um, Maybe they need to sacrifice that they're even leaders.
1: Yeah, in order to serve something bigger. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. I really enjoy this conversation a lot. It feels like it takes us into very kind of deep territory. And, you know, I'm wondering if there's anything else you want to say about leadership. We've, we've highlighted five, I think, qualities of leadership, sovereignty, sacrifice, maturity, purpose, empathy. I don't know if there's if there's other qualities you think are needed in leadership. That's one question. And, and maybe a closing question is really around, are you hopeful?
2: I think anyone who's deeply engaged in the climate crisis um, laughs at the word hope. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's become as irrelevant to me as the word good. I'm highly engaged, I'm very curious. Um, I have a deep reverence for the intelligence of life and am enormously grateful for the opportunity to experience this. Does that answer the question?
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I kind of ask it with, with a little bit of in a way because I also know that hope is a is such a kind of broad and you know different people have different ways of being with it but I guess I guess what I'm wanting to invite you to share at the end of this of this interview is where you see or do you see anywhere things that really encourage you support you you feel like that's great this is good i'm happy this is happening like what mm-hmm. what, what are the things that you would bring forward to feel like yeah these are the seeds of the new
2: yeah well for instance i'm very i this conversation uh brings me hope that somebody you know like me you know who as a 7-year-old girl thought that I was kind of a freak for having an intimate relationship with nature that now I'm asked to speak about leadership that brings me hope i guess you know i don't necessarily have hope in terms of any fixed outcome of humanity and how this is all going to turn out i think we're in for a very very wild, wild ride but i do have hope for healing we may still die we are dying we're I mean that's that's going to happen but uh, we may heal and then just I, I do want to talk just a little bit about leadership um, and if I could leave with anything that the thing that I've really discovered the most is that we are all leaders right now it, and I, and I don't mean to kind of whitewash that or, or you know, give everybody a, a gold medal or that kind of thinking. But uh, um, we are all active participants in our lives. There is, you know, I think seeing what's going on in world leadership right now, when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, I think that was the moment when I understood that I had to be a leader. Our leaders are obviously failing us. So, you know, this separation that, oh, well, some people are going to lead and some people are going to follow. And if we have good leaders, then we're all going to be in good hands. I don't think that's true. That, that's a myth. Um, we're all here uh, as unique uh, manifestations of life and as uh, just by the very fact of our existence puts us into a position of leadership. At, at the very least, we need to lead ourselves in our little tiny lives forward so i don 't think it 's something that is left for the chosen few it 's up to all of us now.
1: Right, and maybe those are great words to close with it 's up to all of us now it 's not something that we leave to the chosen few and mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this time and thank you for all that you're writing and thinking about and performing and sharing in different mediums and We will definitely be posting your kind of website and, and your some of your articles I think when we put up the interview so thank you so much sandy for your time it's been great to talk to you i feel enriched by this legend of Inanna that's kind of working its way into my psyche as we talk
2: oh that's wonderful thank you robin
1: thank you too